Let us begin by setting the scene and providing a little bit of context to how microscopic and temporary our current conditions are in the grand sweep of deep time. The Big Bang happened around 14 billion years ago. To our current knowledge, it seems like it either doesn't make sense to ask what came before, or the answer is nothing. For the majority of time since then, the Earth had not yet formed. It finally did around 5 billion years ago. Since the dawn of our planet, it remained a sterile wasteland for the vast majority of its time. And since the biogenesis event, where activity moved from chemistry into biology, life remained a simple single-celled process for eons. Since the advent of complex multicellular life, the vast majority of time flowed by until vertebrates emerged. A long sweep of evolution as the universe grew older saw land mammals begin to breathe air. Since this time, the vast majority of the era passed before great apes arrived. And since this development, modern humans only began to walk on the savannah around 200,000 years ago. Homo sapiens existed in a classless state for the vast majority of the time since then. Since the advent of the agricultural revolution, only around 12,000 years ago, the overwhelming majority of time spent in class society was pre-capitalist. We can only really begin to speak of capitalism in the last 500 years or so, and only in a modern recognisable form since the 19th century. In the last 200 years, the Industrial Revolution in Britain exploded the way forward for technology, as well as theoretical and population expansions, the echoes of which we inhabit today. So as the dust seems to settle, remember that though the ground beneath your feet may feel inert, unending and natural, everything is in motion and we hurtle through both space and time together. What will happen next? How can you know that I'm self-censoring? How can you know that you're self-censoring? I'm sure you believe everything you're saying. But what I'm saying is if you believe something different, you wouldn't be sitting where you're sitting. The result is an absence of checks and balances in Russia and the decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. You don't go to poor countries to make money. I mean, the Philippines are rich. Brazil is rich. Mexico is rich. Chile is rich. Only the people are poor. Putin's a killer. A lot of killers. We got a lot of killers. Why well, you think our country's so innocent? Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I mean, you are a millionaire funded by billionaires. That's what you are. You're not. You're not part of the solution, uh, Mr. Mr. Carlson. You're part of the problem. But there's billions to be made there, to be carved out and to be taken. It's been billions for 400 years. The capitalist European and North American powers have carved out and taken the timber, the flax, the hemp, the cocoa, the rum, the tin, the copper, the iron, the rubber, the bauxite, the slave, and the cheap labor. These countries are not underdeveloped, they're overexploited. Let us be together and recognize another world is possible if we come together to understand the power we've got and achieve that decent, better society where everyone matters. I don't know who created Pokemon Go, but I try to figure out how we get them to have Pokemon go to the polls. We are the ones that are suffering in the corporations that you're talking about, the businesses that you're talking about, in the warehouses that you're talking about. So. 
that's the reason why I think I was invited today to speak on that. He's deflected from the actual argument What I try and do is be fair about Trump. What you do and to no one is else. be relentlessly anti-Trump and relentlessly pro-somebody like Obama. I'm not pro-Obama. I've been a critic of Obama. I'm a critic of the Democratic Party because I'm literally a communist. Um, so just take that into consideration that the people are the ones that make these corporations go. It's not the, it's not the other way around. And as the mole of history returns to the surface once more, we're here to have a chat and discuss. There's a bloody gap in the script. <laughs> um, we're here. I'm Tom and I'm Fred. We're here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and as the mole of history returns to the surface once more, we're here. Yeah. I'm Tom. And I'm Fred. (laughs) (laughs) And we're really excited to be in our first, well, we're not quite sure what the style of the podcast is going to be, are we, Fred? No. (laughs) But we do do have some good ideas and this is our first attempt at piecing together an episode. And so looking forward to doing that. And we thought we'd start with, I guess, a little bit of a a throwback to Trip to the Left. Yep. Now, humble beginnings in podcasting foray. Yeah, it's crazy. It was February 2021 that we started Trip to the Left, and we finished that after seven episodes. And we're actually going to put the we're going to put the archive on on the site, aren't we, Fred? Themoleworld.com. Yeah. Uh, and so, if you're still listening to us now from that time, then you've successfully tripped to the left and you've fallen. And welcome. Yeah, welcome. Yeah, we, we've done the same. We've we've fully tripped in the meantime. I mean, I actually never listened to the Trip to the Left episodes. I was very much... Um, oh, yeah. Uh, kind of, I listened to it a lot because I was editing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, exactly. It's good to look back and see what subjects we spoke about at the time. Yeah, yeah. I was definitely... I was learning sort of as we went and still am, you know. But um, I think that yeah. time there was very much at the beginning of uh, what's been a substantial journey in the meantime. Yeah, yeah. And for those of you who don't know, that was our previous project where we were talking about politics, but more explicitly to an audience of less sympathetic people who were less involved or had less knowledge. And we were trying to pitch kind of more moderate and gradually more left-wing ideas in that context. And in this new project, we're still going to be hopefully taking the best of that forward, um, but it's going to be a bit more talking to the left about what we're going to do and going to go a bit further with some of the theory and some of the ideas and also be more explicitly radical. Yeah, so it's crazy to think that that much time has passed since we were doing Trip to the Left and so much has changed in the meantime. I'm uh, really excited about the bits that we're doing now. can't wait to launch the, the couple of projects that we're sort of working on actively at the moment, both video-based and, and otherwise. And we've got lots of plans for where we're going to start to go, um, people we want to get in touch with. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just looking forward to it all. Yeah, like a lot has happened both in the world since then in terms of political events. Like it's kind of like whenever we start, we're already behind. Um, and a lot of been lots been happening personally in our lives. Um, there was like quite a lot of health stuff that I'm working on that I think I'm in a much better place with now. Um, that got pretty bad in the period between and for like the last few years, really. Which I might go into more at some point, but yeah, I'm in a better place with it and we're in a good place and the world is not in a good place. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, Fred, Fred's sounding more like Fred, but the world's sounding more and more crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so before we come on to the bigger conversation about the kind of poly crisis in the UK at the moment, uh, which is the topic at hand for today's episode. To get the ball rolling, we're going to have a short story 
or to get the get the tunnels dug and to put or a shovel in the earth. And if you if you hadn't guessed yet, um, there's lots of metaphors. Yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> mixing our metaphors. We're basically starting to put together the first few pieces of a world that we've enjoyed creating over the past couple of years, and in which we based our animated introduction video that you can find on YouTube and via our website. Mm-hmm. It should grow into something and hopefully it will be something that will kind of make quite simple some more complicated political concepts. So it's not too heavy at this stage. So just kind of go with it and it should grow naturally, hopefully. Yeah, let it flow over you. And the plan is that all of the patrons who are kind enough to be supporting us and who have started supporting us in our first year, so several months left on that, will get a copy of a book we're going to make, which will sort of be a story that also looks to explore some of those political concepts and and definitions of different theoretical terms like an illustrated children's style book hopefully exactly so anyone listening who's interested in receiving a copy of this book and interested in supporting the podcast head on over to themoleworld.com forward slash support has begun to call within a filamentous structure of lights inside a great wheel of turning stars rotating a yellow fire in the darkness nestled within an archaic land a panoply of green forests and woods grown under the weight of their accumulating contradictions reaching into the sky they synthesize underneath where the brown soil gives way to grey stone in the darkness we can hear a quiet and gentle scraping the mole is digging The oldest roots and deepest mycelium stretch far below, like inverted trees reaching into a distant sky, feeding the things that grow below them. Emerging from this base, a superstructure blooms into life. Plants of many varied forms thrive. The air in which the forest grows hold potentials unbound for the creatures that can move through it. The birds take flight and, from the canopies, the squirrels watch them disappear over the horizon, entering new realities. In darkness below, The mole still digs, undulating, sometimes reaching towards the air, but always forced to dig down once more towards the core. It carries with it the memories of the times that it's looked out from its mounds at the world above. But those times feel far behind already, an overwhelming light to which his eyes had never adjusted before it was forced to dive down once again. Above this base, two larger creatures fight into the night. The fox and badger emerge in a clearing, both from homes shallow in the earth. One entity against another, a synthesis in itself. The fox, economic in its speed and agility. The badger, stately in its posture and bite. The first animal who'll greet the mole, we will be very soon. The hedgehog, in the fallen leaves, sticks close to the ground and moves on a two-dimensional plane, navigating the obstacles and avoiding those with sharp teeth. The trees shake as the animals form a dialectic in their midst. Sat... Watching down from high up in the structured limbs of the trees, the squirrels blink their eyes and scuttle across the conceptual climbs in the heights of their wisdom. The network of branches is their playground, up high in the canopies of synthesis, where the fighting below grows quieter. All of this is small, when reflected in the keen eyes of the birds that wheel overhead. Unbound from creeping plants, they hover and fly on the currents of air rushing past them, unimpeded and overlooking all that's below. They soar through incomprehensible social possibilities. 
and yet to the mole down below, now tunnelling through shallow and fertile soil, this is all yet to be seen. Its destiny is yet to be made. The wonders are yet to be explored. The universe is yet to be inherited. As the seasons have always turned, the animals have always evolved. The future is pregnant with possibilities. So to get the conversation underway, we wanted to start off with a couple of news subjects. And the first ones were here in the UK. Um, so Fred, you had a couple of those. Yeah. Um, so other than the what we were referring to before, the kind of protracted poly crisis, um, on specifics, we have the continuous U-turns from Starmer that I think are still happening like in the very last few days. Where he, he they keep like putting out something that seems slightly more promising, even from a really moderate perspective, and then just rolling back a few days later every time. So have they rolled back on the thing that I saw like two days ago? With Probably. The, Which one? <laughs> the nationalised energy company, um, and then what were they doing with that though? Like, so there was one company nationalised, and then yeah, Great Bridge Energy. Mm, uh, and then I'm trying to remember what the pledge and, was. and the twenty eight billion. Yeah, pro- quite possibly. What was that? Yeah, because the twenty eight billion, the funding for the climate transition that was t- touted like like two years ago at a conference and it was like the one thing that people were like well that's decent and that was the thing that was rolled back very recently where they were saying like oh we're not going to do that right away and it's like they basically they've set themselves that these fiscal rules which break all of their pledges and so they say we can't do the pledges because they break our fiscal rules which we've made up um <laughs> Yeah, well, they, they're saying that I think that's a clever play, yeah. isn't it, that they're using where they're saying like the the financial situation has changed. Yeah, so all yeah, of, yeah. I mean, Starmer's pledges from when he was running for leadership, um, which, you know, of which I think has he has he not turned back on any of them? I think all of them are in some way gone and anything else seems like it will. And yeah, it seems like they've, they've finally found a narrative for it because for years they didn't even have a narrative, did they? Yeah, they just avoided it. Yeah, they're, they're now like, okay, cool, yeah. we had a pandemic and we're in some, like, the, the economies. Yeah, stuff. they say they say COVID, Ukraine, trust, everything's changed. We're not ideological, we change with the realistic options, you know. Uh, on the 28 billion, we are doubling down. We're not backing off. And it's really important that we say this uh, for two reasons for uh, the policy position we've adopted. The first is a matter of trust, the very thing you touch on, Beth, which is we said that our fiscal rules were in place. Rachel set them out two years or more ago. Inflation now is in a completely different place to where it was two years ago because the Tories have made such a mess and done such damage to the economy. But at the same time, as we work through our plans and set out what we'll do in years one, two, three, showing just how serious we are, it's clear that we can ramp up to that £28 billion. And what I would say, Beth, is this. When I say to um, people in the sector that we will partner with, that we want clean power by 2030. They don't say you're somehow backing down or lacking ambition. They say, whoa, that is a real challenge. Centrica say it's doable, but we're really going to have to go for it. So there's nothing here to read into any sense of lacking ambition or backing down. 
And so I'm trying to remember some of the policies which have been turned back on. But obviously, there was the nationalization of, of industry. They were going to increase the income tax for top 5% of earners. They, they've they broken their pledge on the climate that we were just talking about. Yeah, yeah. The, the whole thing stems from the fact that they're, they don't want to tax wealth. Because if they taxed wealth, they could do all of the stuff they said. But because they're saying like that's against our fiscal rules, it can't be done. And the amount of times they, they brought up the same thing where they're like, oh, we're going to get rid of non-DOM tax status. And from that, we're going to fund all of these things. Like every single time they say, how are we going to pay for it? It's like, well, we're going to do their non-DOM thing because they found like a splinter because of the whole Rishi Sunak's wife using non-DOM status. That was like a, an easy win because it was very unpopular. It wasn't well understood before. And as soon as people realized it was happening, they were like, wait, why is that happening? <laughs> but there's so much to go into there. We could talk about that for an hour. <laughs> well, we have got, we've got stuff that we, we want to come back to on this subject, don't we? But it's a continuing saga that will only um, grow between now and when we do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And we also wanted to quickly speak about Glastonbury because this was one that's that's happening like literally right now this weekend, and it struck me as one that either is barely covered in the mainstream or is covered, you know, in the opposite way that we would cover it. Which is that there's been this film made that's called Oh Jeremy Corbyn, subtitle The Big Lie. It's narrated by Alexi Sale, who's this kind of left wing comedian in UK media. And it's all about how there was a kind of quite well orchestrated coup within Labour and externally to Labour to bring down Corbyn. And this is based on stuff that is entirely explicit, entirely in the public domain in every sense. And it's kind of denied as a conspiracy theory. And it's yet again linked back into the accusations of anti-Semitism, which will be an ongoing theme, which we can explore to different amounts, different places. And if you'd listened to our episode in Trip to the Left... Um, where we went into uh, Israeli politics. And the starting point there is about the conflation of anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism, which is in a subject by itself. Something we should definitely come back to and discuss again in, in a lot more detail. Yeah. And so this film has been made. It was going to be showed at Glastonbury, which is this weekend as we're recording. And in, tw- in 2017, that was the high point of Corbynism, where he was stood on the main pyramid stage there was thousands and thousands of young people and, you know, I guess progressive people um, and it had all these banners and everything. He gave this victorious speech and that was the moment that the, the media were like, oh no, <laughs> like collectively they were like, oh no, literally. <laughs> and this time they were going to show the big lie in this kind of, you know, side event. And even that by itself, six years later is too much. And so our friend Paul Mason, <laughs> I don't know how much we want to go into specifics. Um, I, th- I think uh, not this time, a huge yeah, amount. I yeah, mean, yeah. Paul Mason is most famous most recently for his uh, network of conspiracy, yeah. um, linking different leftist organizations and individuals to each other. And it's kind of like when you look at it, you wonder what's going on yeah. a bit, don't you? There's an arrow from Navarra Media to like the black community or something. Yeah, like an unhinged map. And then he's accusing that film of being conspiracy that's unfounded because he's fallen in entirely with Keir Starmer's project. And I mean, yeah, we'll go into that another time, but he's made previously years ago the accusations that are in this film that he was being undermined. And he, he played a key role in getting the the film to not be shown at Glastonbury this yeah. weekend, right? Yeah, he published uh, quite an influential article in like uh, an internal kind of labor focused media platform that was labor list wasn't it yeah and then it was kind of the cries came out around that and it was enough to get it taken off i also think like vodafone was sponsoring the event and they 
got wind of it and what, that were saying they might pull their funding or something. I don't know the exact mechanism. Right. Um, and so that got cancelled to much cheer from the right of the Labour Party. And then since then, like a small group have been trying to network themselves to show it multiple times in different places in a kind of grassroots way at the festival, which is currently taking place. So it's now like it became much more famous because of this pushback, which is quite funny. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> so that's quite funny. So it's being shown a lot at the moment. Um, and we haven't seen it yet, but we might watch it and talk about it in another episode. But it seems very interesting. And yeah, I guess that, I guess that's the basics. Yeah. 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 So what, what else uh, UK wise? Uh, so there's the COVID inquiry, which is currently ongoing, particularly significant. They, they just had George Osborne and David Cameron in. And they were asking them about the role that austerity played in the UK being totally unprepared for COVID. Do you accept, Mr Cameron, that the health budgets over the time of your government were inadequate and led to a depletion in its ability to provide an adequate service? Um, I, I don't accept that, um, neither on a sort of big picture level or yes. on a small picture level. I mean, the big picture level, I don't think you can separate the decision and the necessity of getting the budget deficit down and having a, a, a reasonable debt to GDP ratio so you can cope with future crises. I don't think you can separate that from um, the funding of the health service or indeed anything else. I mean, if you lose control of your debt and you lose control of your deficit and you lose control of your economy, you end up cutting the health service. That's what happened in Greece. That's what happened in countries that did lose control um, of their finances. So I don't think you can separate the two. And it's quite interesting politically because at the time it was kind of hegemonically understood that like austerity was necessary. It was painful. They're making quote difficult decisions, <laughs> not difficult for them. And that it was going to make the economy bounce back. And now it's kind of just a joke. Like basically everyone knows that it, it, it wasn't necessary. It did damage and it made the rich richer and the poor poorer. And so it was interesting to see how they defended themselves, you know, because since then the whole conservative party went to kind of Boris Johnson like Johnsonism, where they're like, we are going to spend more and austerity is over and it was a mistake, like almost explicitly. So they're kind of like from this mini bygone age and they've just been summoned back to defend themselves. And it was kind of notable how their face they were. They were just literally like, well, we had to do austerity. Otherwise, that we would have had like a debt crisis similar to Greece and then we wouldn't have been able to do anything. Yeah, sort of classic debt focused rhetoric. Yeah. And it's interesting because from our perspective, which is somewhat different to the mainstream perspective, is that George Osborne as Chancellor in particular, but that the whole Cameron administration was the most damaging administration since this kind of Tory reign. Like materially what they did, austerity had killed more people than COVID did by itself. There's studies which show that. And it's also the fact that they did like the exact opposite thing at the exact opposite time, even on kind of economics own terms in the sense that they were cutting everything when borrowing was extremely cheap. And then Boris Johnson came in when borrowing was more expensive, and now it's really expensive. And now they have to fund stuff, and it's really expensive. When they could have been building up everything when it was cheap, and then you get you reap the rewards of that, even within kind of bourgeois economics own terms. So it was the worst possible thing at the worst possible time. And so it's another example of this kind of mass manufacturing of consent with the media in step to explain how you know the country's like a household budget and we have to cut all of these things in this way at this time and everyone's like well it sounds quite serious and sounds quite quite difficult decision so i guess yeah that's like the good thing to do and that comes off the back of the tories successfully building a narrative that labor's spending too much on public services was part of the reason of the financial crash 
And so now we need to move into competent, serious cutters to manage the economy. And now today, like the reputation of the Tories to manage the economy is kind of just completely gone. And that creates a space for a potential Starmer administration to come in and the left wing of capital to take the reins again. That's part of the shape of this whole thing. Yeah, so this is a perfect opportunity to sidestep into some of the headlines that we've got down to talk about from the US. And only recently have they managed to put to bed this this whole debt ceiling crisis that they've been having with this artificial limit that they've invoked that says once the debt hits this certain point, we're no longer able to fund anything. The government would literally shut down because they haven't approved a raise of this ceiling that they've artificially put in place. So as the world's reserve currency, they, if anyone, could print some more and get around this um, this issue. But the Republican Party... And they have been doing it a lot. <laughs> yeah, for, for a long time now, since, I, I mean, especially 2008 with quantitative easing. And now, um, you know, where Biden had a couple of options at his disposal, there was there was two or three which seemed to be the most promising if he was to to kind of go around this bipartisan approach that he's trying to take, which the Republicans never return when they're in power. He could have invoked the Fourteenth Amendment, um, which said that the the, the U.S. debt always has to be like held to be true. Mm-hmm. Also, um, they could have minted a trillion dollar coin, which is one of the more creative ones to read into. Oh, yeah, that was funny. And it's kind of, kind of like in the way that you think that the Democrats don't really want to do anything too radical. It's kind of a convenient check on their power, isn't it? Where Biden said, you know, we need a competent um, Republican Party in the same way that the left arm of capital in the UK with Starmer is if they're checking themselves against the conservatives, they don't mind, they don't mind too much. It's kind of useful. When you say checking themselves, what do you mean? Like they're saying, we can't do this better thing because we won't, we can't get the support from the opposition. And they kind of like concede the terms of the opposition quite a lot and invoke it as reasons that things can't be done. Yeah, the Democrats especially have this way of kind of using it to um, like, not using their existing powers in the way that they could to get things done now in order to take this bipartisan line, which they then use to push issues to the next election cycle in the hope that... They're incentivized to do that. Like That happens with um, abortion and everything. Roe versus Wade. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, which it's the anniversary of today when we record. It's been a year since Roe versus Wade um, was overturned. Yeah, so a year on... Abortion is illegal in nearly all circumstances in 15 states um, in the US. And then there's multiple where it's only legal for now, looks like it's going to change. And then also several um, where it's legal um, only in earlier sort of stages of pregnancy when lots of people haven't even realized that they're pregnant mm. yet. So huge issue uh, year on from from that decision. And one which the Democrats very much say explicitly can be quoted as saying that it's um, an election-winning issue for them. Yeah, and it was a big part of like the midterms of the Republicans underperforming, people think. Tonight, what may be the strongest evidence yet that following the Supreme Court's reversal of Roe v. Wade, Democrats are benefiting from a surge of new energy that's translating into increased turnout. Overnight, an upset in upstate New York. I, 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 I honestly can't believe it. I cannot believe it. Democrat Pat Ryan pulling off a special election win in a closely watched swing district that voted for President Obama, then Trump, then Biden. So that's a little flavor of Biden getting things done in his air quotes bipartisan way. 
what he's actually done. I don't know if it's worth just quickly rattling off like several things that Biden's actually achieved in his presidency, if I could quickly do that. Mm. He's gotten rid of child tax credits. He's getting rid of student loan deferrals. He's raised the military budget from 660 billion to 880 billion. He's currently governing over terrible inflation. Most of the jobs that exist within the US economy are temporary or gig work. He hasn't raised the minimum wage. Student loan debt has increased over his term so far. He, he was promising that he would cancel some of that, right? Yeah, and it's been paused throughout the pandemic, but it's going to carry on now. And I think they're still in the stages of trying to work out what's going to happen with the cancellation because he put it forward, then it was going to get, it's going to the Supreme Court, uh, which he escalated it to the Supreme Court. And he doesn't have to stick by their decision, but he probably will. But there's some movement recently about it that they might be trying to do it after all, but I'm not sure where it's at. Okay. Right. And, and then I guess final one is that life expectancy has now declined for the fifth straight mm. year. So that's what Biden's approach to lawmaking is causing. And China's overtaken them, haven't they? China is now becoming one of the hottest issues um, for the the capitalist class in America right now. And and, um, the Republicans and Democrats Mm -hmm. alike are very much seeing this real threat of as, as his, i think it was biden that very like the last few days was like china is real <laughs> um, it's a real thing um yeah, yeah yeah and he called she a dictator didn't he he did yeah barely a day after highly sensitive talks between the u.s and china joe biden called china's leader a dictator the u.s president made the remark about xi jinping off camera at a fundraiser The comments come just as top US diplomat Anthony Blinken finished a high-profile visit to Beijing, after which Blinken said the balloon incident should be a closed chapter. The trip was meant to stabilise relations with China, which Beijing says are at their lowest point since formal ties were established. China's foreign ministry responded hours later, saying the remarks, quote, seriously violated China's political dignity and amounted to public political provocation. The incident could jeopardise efforts by both countries to bring their relationship back to a more stable footing. It was the day after Blinken um, arrived back from his diplomatic visit to China, which was previously cancelled because the US shot down a a Chinese most likely weather balloon as it was already leaving. It was already outside of US territory at the point that it was shot down. And it had blown off course. There was a sort of a current of wind that had blown it off course. Xi didn't know where it was and... And so after what you could say was a relatively successful diplomatic trip between Blinken and Xi Jinping, Biden, at an event with Democratic Party donors, so those that fund the party in actuality, but with the press present, says that Xi Jinping didn't know where the balloon was. Like he admits he he didn't know where the balloon was when the event happened. And then says that dictators don't like it when they don't know where their things are. But of course... uh Biden meant that he was uh, an avatar for the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie, which still operates in China. You reckon? <laughs> Doc Brandon. <laughs> <laughs> and so the situation there is is very much a continuation of what the US is doing in, in all of its different foreign relations, where it will say one thing to, to, the, um, to the country and then say another thing in their own press, yeah. you know, in their direct addresses, they will they will say one thing that works for them electorally or whatever it is that's you know, and, and then another to their faces. Yeah, they're kind of flailing as their empire declines, which is kind of what what tends to happen and is also pretty dangerous. 
Yeah, they're stoking fires domestically, which allows them to sort of play off of their electorate and ultimately works in line with their militaristic foreign policies, um, but completely against the diplomatic efforts. Yeah. And yeah, so I guess the the final um, one to, well, one of the final points to touch on here um, is, is the Assange trial has just sort of reached its point where Julian Assange has heard back from his most recent appeal. They waited, I think it's 11 months to to hear a result on that. And the result was sort of one side of A4 or two sides of A4 basically saying, no, your appeal is is rejected. Hmm. From right in saying, it was initially said that Assange wouldn't be extradited to the US based on a uh, judge's decision in the UK saying that not so much on the on political terms, but simply on um, Assange's he- like terms of health yeah. and the conditions that he would be put into in the in US prison was re- yeah. the extradition was was rejected at that point. But the US managed to overturn that by making promises which ultimately have loopholes that enable them to still put him in those terrible conditions. Yeah. Because he's in prison in London, in Belmarsh prison currently. Yeah. And and if this final appeal that he can make here doesn't work, then we're looking at the European court stepping in like they did with that flight to Rwanda hmm. and, and sort of preventing it from taking off. That's the last sort of hope that we have before Julian, who simply revealed many truths about the US military industrial complex and its war crimes. Yeah, so he he was he was head of WikiLeaks that uh leaked a load of information from the Pentagon and the military uh in Afghanistan and Iraq. And the Trump administration had plans to assassinate him, didn't they, in, in prison. Yeah, the CIA was it was definitely the trying to kidnap or poison yeah. him and um, and they've they've used many many um, nefarious tactics to try and get this case to to sort of go their way, and it all basically kicked off at the point where Trump came into his presidency, and his and the head of uh, the director of the CIA at the time, Pompeo, basically made his his acceptance speech, his first speech, that he was adamant to you know it was going to get Assange, and so from that point onwards, they were very much focused on doing it, and right now Biden wouldn't be able to sort of overturn that decision on his own without multiple sort of entities that surround him collapsing in on him and, and <laughs> doing something to prevent it. So mm. it's it's one to be very closely looked at and, and um, watched and in the in the coming weeks and months, you know, uh, to be actively yeah. involved in. And it's interesting because you've, you've got you've got like the beginning of a kind of growing international movement that are taking it seriously, like Lula in Brazil the new prime minister in Australia, um, just to name two kind of notable ones, were coming out explicitly saying that he shouldn't be in jail, he should be freed. He was a very high-profile journalist who was reporting on human rights violations. And then, as always, we have like the ultimate hypocrisy that Blair and Campbell and everybody involved in that in the US who were perpetrating it are not only not in prison, but extremely wealthy, protected, um, and will die comfortable and old, depending on how things go. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. War criminals that currently are very much um, rehabilitated into um, mainstream society. Yeah, like Bush in our intro, accidentally saying. Yeah, (laughs) accidentally saying Iraq instead of uh, Ukraine. Okay, so we we had about three times as many topics that we wanted to touch on in this section, but we, we know that they all need a bit longer than we'd have to give them uh, today. So we're going to push them into future weeks and move on to the poly crisis here in the UK. Yeah. 
So I thought this was a kind of a prescient topic to start with because the kind of drip feed of news internally in the UK for the last few years, basically, um, can be viewed on a higher level as a kind of protracted building up of contradictions in the UK political settlement as it currently exists to the point where we're approaching freefall, basically. Um, so to touch on a few of the subjects that are involved, we have the entire project of austerity. We have the project of Brexit, which is now kind of, it's very unpopular, even among many people who voted leave because of how it's been managed. Farage said on, uh, in, said TV, said on TV that Brexit has been a failure. Politicians are about as useless as the commissioners in Brussels were. We've mismanaged this totally. And if you look at simple things... Simple things uh, such as takeovers, such as corporation tax. We are driving business away from our country. Arguably, now we're back in control, we're regulating our own businesses even more than they were as EU members. Brexit has failed. Uh, Covid coming out of this, uh, kind of entering these already kind of breaking systems with a hammer blow. We have notably in the last like few weeks, even Sturgeon's gone, she... Like was dropped. Well, she left as head of the Scottish National Party. She's being investigated. She was arrested and then w- uh, wasn't charged. Corbyn obviously left after the 2019 result, and like we were saying earlier, is just being further besmirched uh, as the right have total control of the party and the media. Whenever they do mention him, just like hammer him further down, and he's kind of a shadow in the background. Johnson has left Parliament and was recommended those punishments of whatever kind they were from the uh, inquiry into his behavior during the pandemic. How was it that um, Johnson finally stepped down again? So as they found that he was guilty of misleading parliament, they were going to say that he had to have a 90 day uh, recess from parliament and that would have triggered a by-election and he didn't want to fight the by-election and quit it seems. And so then there's the rumblings as usual about what he's going to do next, but he's already got a column in Daily Mail, I think, where he's talking about some really weird stuff. He's been to various places in The Spectator. He was in The Telegraph, I think, um, one of which he was sacked from for lying and making up quotes. I think it's The Telegraph that he, during number 10 he referred to as his boss. This deal is a £1 million Daily Mail contract. Um, so there you go. And I think he was writing about like um, getting salami and cheese from his fridge or something. <laughs> I don't know if that was real. <laughs> uh, and obviously trust, which has kind of been memory hold in some ways, which was just really weird, where she just came really quickly. The queen died. She imploded the economy and then she left, which can also be seen as a symptom of this, like the Tory party, which has been this kind of one party uh, state for the last, like for you know, most of our lives, most of our, yeah. especially our adult lives. Uh, they're kind of on the dregs and they're kind of repeating themselves and it doesn't really make sense anymore. I also thought an interesting thing is that like Johnson was trying to be Churchill, Truss was trying to be uh, Thatcher mm. and they're like, even in the way they're managing, they're trying to call back to when they had some kind of uh, fire under them and they're just like kind of spinning off like a, you know, fire, like a Catherine wheel on the ground or whatever. Also the fact of course, that since Johnson, who got um, a big majority Truss hasn't been popularly elected and she's gone. And then we've got another one who wasn't popularly elected. So Sunak, we didn't vote for. So they've gone twice off a non-national vote. So they have like literally no mandate at all. And Sunak is like probably closest to going back to Cameron Osborne style Tories. 
because the way they stay in power for so long is that they reinvent themselves and kind of blame the mistakes of the last ones and saying we're a new bunch of Tories, basically. But like even with that, they've reached the end of relevance. So it's 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 one of the first times in recent history that like people across the world are like looking at the UK and being like, what the hell? What's going on? <laughs> yeah, we look like an absolute mess, and as does the US as well. But like, yeah, yeah the, the, these Western sort of imperial cores are just starting to well and truly collapse and and rot, aren't they? Yeah, and we're like even longer after our kind of imperial heights. Yeah, uh, as like an empire, and still like the political class think that we're still kind of that, and that's partly what Brexit was trying to reinvigorate that. Like, we can break off from the European Union, be this big power that we were, and they don't know that we're not that anymore. To the point that um, Tobias Elwood, one of the more kind of liberal end of the Tory party, was saying that we we need to put British troops on the ground in Ukraine. At war in Europe, we need to move to a war footing. We are involved in that. We've mobilised our procurement processes. We're gifting equipment. We need to face Russia directly and reckon that rather than leaving Ukraine to do all the work. Yeah, we're getting deeper and deeper into this drive towards this nationalist, patriotist sentiment with union jacks everywhere. Um, it's like the beginning of a lot more of that by the looks of things, isn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah. And that takes us nicely to the coronation. Oh, yes. Very nicely to the coronation. <laughs> and the protests. Yes. Yeah. So the coronation is an interesting one because when you look back at the data from early 2022, um, it was only 32% of Brits that thought that King Charles would do a good job as monarch. But then you look at the sympathetic press and the ceremonies that they use to manufacture consent. Yeah. 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 (laughs) So with that, by October, they were able to manufacture enough consent to see the, his approval ratings leap to 64%. So they doubled um, in the space of only a few months. And, and that kind of, I guess, illustrates the, the power of that machine. Mm. Yeah. Meanwhile, like the overall support for the monarchy has been reducing in a way that it hasn't in its entire history, potentially, apart from when we beheaded the king. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, apart from that bit. And that was, and that was, a previ- that was the previous Charles. So that's also kind of poetically significant yeah yeah the echoes of history yeah we'll go into that whole period at some point definitely definitely but yeah so the the activist group republic who are campaigning for a democratic head of state and a, a modern republic they're, they're 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 the um ones who are sort of synonymous with the yellow signs that say not my king yeah they're a kind of uh ngo uh which is like a non-governmental organization that are campaigning for that um, and they're quite moderate, you know, they, they seem radical in our context, but they're, they're, their aims are entirely, you know, functional within capitalism and parliamentary democracy even, I think. Um, but but that was kind of harshly policed during the coronation. Uh, their signs were seized and a number of them were at the, at the top of the organization were arrested yeah and then they overreached and arrested some other random people didn't they well yeah on the on the day of the coronation they they seized a van full of um signs that said not my king and and yeah arrested um individuals who were going to to protest the police knew there'd be a demonstration on saturday two days before the anti-monarchy group republic tweeted may the 6th we protest the coronation and it had been talking to the police we had four months of briefings in which we were told that all of our plans were absolutely acceptable and fine and well within the law. 
The Met hasn't commented on what contact there was in advance, but early on Saturday, as London waited to host the coronation, Republic and its supporters arrived for their protest. Some came in a van and parked on St Martin's Lane, close to Trafalgar Square, close to the route of the King's procession. And then the police intervened. They confiscated signs reading, Not My King, and Republic's leader, Graham Smith, was arrested, as were other members of the group. The protest they'd organised would go ahead, but without them. Not my king! Not my king! Which then I think it was the next day they apologised for. So it's sort of, you know, um, yeah. uh, let's just kind of get these people out of the way for the, for the day and then we'll just say sorry, you know, and then, like, there's no, yeah. there's no big pictures of people protesting that will kind of encourage further um, discontent. Several several people were arrested over the course of those weeks, weren't they? I mean, there was there was one after the death of um, Queen Elizabeth II. There was a woman yeah. arrested in Edinburgh for saying, "Can we swear on this podcast?" Um, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Um, for saying "fuck imperialism," abol- abolish. Mo- oh, I can't even say. Oh, no, we can't swear on this podcast. I've I've found no, <laughs> you're not not capable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, for saying "fuck imperialism," abolish monarchy, and. Mm. At least two others were held in custody at that point for holding signs. So it starts to really sort of show the cracks in our yeah. supposed democracy that we live in. Yeah, and in the coronation, some people were arrested who were with the Metropolitan Police and were handing out rape whistles. Did you see that stuff? Yeah, I did, but run me through it again. Like they were arrested because they thought that the rape alarms might be used to disrupt the procession and like scare the horses or something. But like they, they were wearing um, luminescent jackets that had the Metropolitan Police logo on it and things like this. So like it, there was this kind of last minute scramble to try and get anyone who might pose a risk and they overreached in lots of ways. And there's, I mean, again, in this episode, we'll, there'll be so many stuff that we touch on that we'll say we're going to go into later. But the Metropolitan Police, uh, their whole saga in general is a massive topic. Yeah, 100%. The support is waning gradually and quickest among the young which seems like kind of something that just naturally happens these days, but like hasn't been the case previously at all. And so, yeah, the the whole kingdom is kind of straining in these various ways. Yeah, we're moving in the direction of this archaic institution being seen for, for what it is. I mean, to think that we have a king, Fred. I know, and we're in the kingdom. It, it sometimes dawns on me, it's quite hilarious. <laughs> it, is, it is hilarious. It's absolutely ridiculous. And yeah, and like you say, the kind of height of the pageantry, the stolen jewels, all of this wealth being spent on it that's from taxes directly um, up against the cost of living crisis is like was kind of one of the most stark contrasts that is just yet another symptom of this whole process. Yeah, yeah, that, that sort of sitting on the golden throne with all your jewels and your, yeah. your, your crown. and Yeah, and it, it being deeply religious and the UK being like one of the most secular countries in, on, in the world. Yeah, yeah, so many contradictions. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess talking of that sort of uh that contrast the 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 other side of it being the the cost of living crisis or um I mean I I remember when it was sort of first being coined and stuff people were th- throwing the cost of living scandal in in the mix and I quite liked it because of the the kind of the conscious involvement of of policy and and rhetoric in the production of this crisis and and it becoming so much worse for all of that. Yeah, yeah, like it, it, it not just being a, a kind of a natural event, but yeah. being caused specifically. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we we know that crises are are, are a common 
event in in capitalism and they 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 recur and 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 yet you know this cost of living crisis that we're experiencing right now uh, yes there's a lot of 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 the the <laughs> there was going to be a crisis one way or another a lot of what people are experiencing day to day could be a lot better um than it is because of decisions that are being made yeah and uh an increase in the price of the essentials like housing heating food uh, like we're seeing, is one of the, most, the strongest and most reliable indicators historically that a revolutionary situation or at least political instability is kind of incoming. And especially when you've had a, a period that's been a bit more stable previously, where living standards were gradually increasing, because then you've got a kind of population who are primed to think that life will continue to get better gradually, and therefore we can rely on the status quo. And when those things suddenly dip, um, and you have that kind of missing trajectory and people start to look at the system and think this isn't going to give us what we thought it was, that's when things can happen quite quickly. Yeah, when people start to expect certain things in their um, in their day-to-day and then those things are taken away, yeah. that, that is uh, a significant point of, of awakening and of consciousness forming, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and we're sort of living in that moment really right now. Yeah. And, and that's what we're trying to do here as well, basically, isn't it? It's like challenge the assumptions and then learn from those things. What, what can you find? Can you give any examples of those assumptions? As in like political assumptions yeah. about to what extent the current uh, system is democratic would be one, yeah, which is being shown through the um, prime ministers, um, to what extent the royal family is kind of natural, innate and gives us good benefits, which is being challenged. The fact that will be able to provide food, housing, uh, that like, you know, young people today will have a better future than their parents. That uh, a lot of those things kind of stem from the baby boomer generation and the particular cycle of accumulation that capital was in at the time, which is another one we'll go into at some point. So yeah, we've now got more food banks um, than branches of McDonald's. Mm. (laughs) And we're dealing with a significant crisis within our NHS as well which is continuing to be stripped apart for for private industry. And I mean, uh, recently, one of the the headlines is that they're going to reduce waiting lists by directing people to private hospitals, which reminds me of the the situation in during like the peak of COVID, where the Tories spent approximately 400 million pounds a month uh, buying up the entire capacity of the the nation's private hospitals. Um, And apparently, during that time, in the year to March 21, there was no COVID patients treated at all on 39% of those days and only one patient treated on the other 20%. So uh, the inefficiency of, of this approach is just kind of there to be seen in examples like that, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and like the other team, like the red team, Labour, uh, aren't seriously challenging that model. And Wes Streeting, the health secretary, uh, is kind of in hoc with private medical, well, I mean, they're funding the Labour Party and those interests are being protected so another part of this poly crisis is a kind of lack of meaningful opposition so it it all comes together to create a very very bad situation and and on top of all of this sort of ridiculousness we've got the the sewage systems um that are being directly pumped out into the sea my mum was actually saying the other day how uh she she won't swim in the sea anymore (laughs) did you did you have anything specific on this one um i mean i guess it it goes into the kind of private water system that has no incentives to keep those things clean. 
uh, all the environmental announcements recently about how like I think every single river in the nation like doesn't pass the kind of clean water levels that they use in like Europe and things, or at least the vast majority. Yeah. So the the private element here being unique to the UK, the only country where this is the case, right? Yeah. And where you know there is zero incentive for a company like J.P. Morgan to be reinvesting or uh, investing the profits that they they're making off of our water networks into fixing the Mm. hundreds of thousands of leaks that we've got in the system that are causing massive waste that are causing um these dangerous drinking conditions We're, we're in a situation where the system is not going to fix the sorts of infrastructural problems that we are encountering like kind of head on um and so people are sort Mm. of seeing all of these ridiculous things happening they're feeling uncomfortable about swimming in the sea they're feeling uncomfortable about even maybe i mean drinking water i don't like the thought of that i haven't thought i don't think about it (laughs) (laughs) so stop talking about it friend (laughs) we are in a situation where we're confronting all of these contradictions these strange phenomena that seem like they don't have any logical explanation yeah just presents itself as a mess yeah, and then that's the other mess. side of it is that like these kind of private water firms that are putting their money made off a utility which everyone needs, which is kind of one of the great you know leaps forward of the twentieth century, having plumbed water into our homes, um, taking that natural monopoly, um, profiteering off it, and then the other side to all of this misery, which we're listing out, is that the, this ruling class are, are richer than they've ever been, and they're getting richer faster than they ever have. Um, so that's the primary contradiction, which we kind of went through in the uh, first episode where we were talking to Chris Nynan. Um, but that's always part of this con- context. Yeah, exactly. There isn't one of these topics that we've gone across that doesn't include that centrally in it. Yeah. The structures that support this grotesque growth of wealth in the few that run our system, that own the means of production and that continue to exploit the infrastructure, which was in... All of these cases built by public funds and built by um, by the state workers and by the workers. Yeah, yeah. And that leaves us with these these conditions, which not only domestically are, are worsening in these different ways, but also off the back of this colonial history that we've got the exporting of industry to other countries because of cheaper wage labor and more exploitable workforces, and then the increased emissions from this especially sort of you know exporting the labor to countries which just have dirtier coal uh, like china where we continue to do this they are going to be experiencing some of the more severe implications of the oncoming climate crisis of the the climate crisis which we are living through already which we are running out of any time to to address and and so need to be thinking about we haven't even spoken about that (laughs) yeah how are we going to address this um you know it leads to questions like, what what are we as 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 a as a people? What are we going to do? You know. But on that point of exporting all of those those things overseas, for them to then um, bear the brunt of of the crisis, which is we are we are now living in the the, the this um, climate disaster, where we're going to see climate refugees simply looking for conditions that they can actually survive in. And this sort of nationalistic um, patriotism that we're seeing the the rise of and we've been talking about already being a reactionary sort of um, response to this oncoming crisis, which w- 
where we should be, you know, welcoming people in, looking after every single person that's being that's finding themselves in such a difficult situation that they have to look for somewhere else to live. You know, nobody would want to leave if if you could live where you're born with your friends, your family, with the infrastructure that you need, the, the education that's sort of comparable to the rest of the world, access to food and water, um, all these people, are, people don't just go, I want to go to this other country. It's purely because of the fact that we've exploited these countries to build a way of life which uses this extracted wealth to support a, a, a way of life that people in the rest of the world don't have the luxury of experiencing. Yeah, and it's being undermined by our ruling class, like we were saying. Uh, and like the uh, foreign policy of our country destabilized the region in Iraq, Afghanistan directly very recently. Yeah. And that it, it's a very short road from kind of national conservatism to eco fascism, which is a potential uh, road uh, in the future. Yeah. So the question being where are the riots, right? Yeah. Like, where's the reaction? We're seeing an uptick in the labor movement. We're seeing more strikes than since the 70s. But yeah, like the other side, the, the kind of reaction to this change of conditions isn't to the same level as what we've been enduring. So this is where there's work to be done. This is where we need to understand what those limits are and how to overcome them. And yeah, exactly. Where are the riots? Yeah. So it's the time where we need to really bring our reaction back to not not like oh how are we going to change the fact that Boris Johnson is you know or whoever it is is in power is doing the sorts of things that Boris Johnson did when, <laughs> um, and does and what Sunak's doing currently and what Starmer will do and if he gets into power and what it, it's 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 not so much you know sort of um, feeling alienated from that process and much more looking locally and organizing with your local communities and and in fact you know responding to things like the food crisis with things like food co-ops and responding to all of these these issues um by by speaking uh with with your neighbors right i mean that's that's one of the the things that we can start to do straight away yeah it's like the the opposition exists it's kind of within everyone it's going to be pushed further and further to the surface and it's how are we going to get organized what are we going to do about it um and yeah like you say it's time to realize it's not them who are going to sort it for us it's us who are going to do it ourselves in lots of different ways which the whole project of this podcast will go into and explore we just didn't want to get we didn't want to list out loads of horrible stuff and then be like yeah bye <laughs> that's that's it yeah this is what we're dealing with i mean we all and, and everybody has a feel for this ridiculous situation that we're living in um and and sometimes it's difficult to to sit down and actually confront the subject where we're, we're sort of looking to do that in a way where we we do point out the the obscenities and the contradictions and and then also you know we very much want to talk about what it is that what that can lead to what can we do about it and what are the possible directions we can move in um moving forward but for today i think we just wanted to outline really the situation that we find ourselves in especially like you know us here in the uk like this is where mm. we're we're making the podcast from this is the this is what we're living in the middle of um food for thought. yeah these are our conditions these are our conditions we gotta understand what's happening have an analysis use theory to create praxis and so this is step one we're getting our bearings and the project's kind of off the ground now. 
So that's all we've really got time for today. I mean, we, we've we've hopefully kind of painted a picture, you know, following our first episode with the interview with Chris Nynum earlier on this month. It's It's been an opportunity for us to sort of sit down and actually have our first conversation together. We've learned loads over the course of even just doing this. So um, it's stuff to take on and, um, and very much exciting in terms of all the different subjects that we want to come back to. So we're looking forward to bringing you another episode in two weeks time. And so I guess the final thing for us to say is, is thank you to those that are already supporting us. Um, and again, for those who might be interested in making it possible for us to bring you these episodes once every two weeks, and then in the future, bring you exclusive episodes for those that are supporting us. And then also all this video work that we're, we're working on on YouTube, um, all of which you can find on our website at themoleworld.com. And so for anybody who's also interested in helping to support us, you can go to themoleworld.com forward slash support. And for those of you listening that want to send us in some feedback and even some suggestions around what we might cover in weeks ahead, um, you can do that by sending us an email on the tunnels at themoleworld.com. Yeah. Um, and so the more you share uh, with friends or family or anyone who you think might be interested, the more you'll fuel this show uh, and get the good word out. Uh, it's all part of the project we're building so we'd really appreciate that yeah we really would so thank you to those who are doing all of those things and um, in the meantime take care so fred i guess it's time for us to say you bring the cheese i'll bring the crackers Leave it there? Yeah.